We're looking at our Bibles this morning in Isaiah chapter 45, picking up from two weeks ago. Isaiah chapter 45, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 25. Wonderful text as God invites everyone to turn to him and be saved. Listen to God's word this morning as I read Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other God, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together. You survivors of the nations, they have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols, who keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come, to him shall come, and he, and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Again, to help put this wonderful text in context, God is speaking to people in the 8th century B.C. through Isaiah the prophet. He is warning them 
They are a rebellious and idolatrous people. And he is warning them that judgment is coming on the nation. That judgment will come in about 150 years by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. After that, the people of God would live in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Perhaps you've uh, thought about why 70 years. The reason is that they lived in the land that God had given them for 490 years. And part of God's law to his people, for them to learn to trust him, to believe his word, to believe that he could provide for them, part of the law was that every seventh year they were to stop farming. They were to leave the land untilled, leave it fallow, and not plant again until the eighth year, which means if they had done that, they would have had to have trusted God that the crop of the sixth year would, would have been enough to get them through the seventh year and through a good part of the eighth year until that new harvest would come. Well, for 490 years, they did not practice, they did not obey that law. They did not trust God to provide. It's much like, I would say, many Christians today who feel like, you know, I need to work seven days a week. Even though God says, no, one day is for worship and rest, and on the other six, I will provide enough for you to take you through the seventh. Well, Israel did not practice the law of the sabbatical year, and 490 divided by uh, seven is 70. And so God is requiring of them the years that he stole from them, that they would not live by faith, and now for 70 years they must live by faith in a foreign land in Babylon. But God's not through with his people. Isn't it wonderful that as rebellious and resistant and disobedient as we can be at times that God, even though he may allow us to suffer some of the consequences of our sin. He never lets go of us. He keeps pursuing us, and he's always drawing us back to himself. So even though judgment was coming, God at the same time as we've seen gave them a promise that at the end of that 70 years, he would raise up someone, think about this, that 150 years before Cyrus is even on planet Earth, God is naming him and telling God's people, I'm going to raise up this pagan king. This is his name, and he is going to defeat Babylon, and he is going to send you back to uh, Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. This is a wonderful display of God's power. 
And of course, he did that for for greater reasons than just putting his people back in the land. He did that because through those people would come the Messiah. And the Messiah would come to Jerusalem. He would come to that temple. He would be that greater glory that Haggai, the prophet, talked about. He would bring a greater glory to the temple. He would be crucified in the precinct of Jerusalem. And so God uses Cyrus to prepare the way for our great Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. God is interested in saving people. He's interested in saving the worst of people. He's interested not only in saving sinners, he's interested in saving believers because often we need to be rescued again from our rebellion. And so I love verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. One of the repeated claims of our text, if you notice, is that the God of Israel, who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the giver of the Holy Spirit, the God of Israel is the only God who saves sinners. We saw that in verse 14, in verse 18, in verse 21, two times, in verse 22, in verse 24, I am God, there is no other. And so this morning I want to talk to you. I want to encourage you, if you have not done that, to surrender to the only God who can save you. And if you are one who says, well, I've already done that, I did that a long time ago, but you're at a place in your life like Israel where you're idolatrous, where you're running away, where you're not upholding the kind of life that he calls you to, then these words are for you also. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Three things I want us to think about in this text this morning. First of all, I want us to listen clearly to God's offer. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And hopefully by the end of this sermon, you will have memorized that verse. But even more importantly, you will have turned to God and be saved. Listen to the offer. Think with me for a few minutes as as I sort of unpack this verse. What is it to turn? What is God saying? Well, it's simply this. If you do not know this God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not surrendered to him as Lord of your life, 
then you are going the wrong way. Of course, you think it's the right way, but as the writer of Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end of it is the way of death. And that verse was so important to the writers of Proverbs, he said it twice in that book. So turning means you're going the wrong way, you're chasing after idols that offer you false promises of happiness, but the end of that road is death. The end of that road is an eternal hell. Jesus put it this way, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and Those who enter by that way are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. To turn simply means to repent, and repentance is always turning away from something to someone, to the living God. Why should we turn? God simply says, to be saved. Now, from what do you and I need to be saved? I had a conversation the other night with someone who uh, I asked him simply, uh, a lot of church people there, and I said, "Uh, where do you go to church? He said, I haven't been to church in a long, long, long time. I said, well, why not? He said, I don't, I don't need religion. You know, I was raised in this Christian denomination, and, you know, I got disappointed with it. And he said, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm a good person without going to church. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by you're good? He says, well, I, I live by this rule that, you know, I, I, want, I treat others as I want them to treat me, and that's the rule that I follow. And, and uh I'm a good person. So I said, well, how good do you have to be for God to accept you? He said, well, I haven't really thought about that, but I'm a good person. I said, well, you're good by your standard because you've set the standard. I treat others as others treat me. But are you good by God's standard? Because God's standard is his own holy character. And the Bible tells us that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, one of the hardest things to tell anybody, especially a good, self-righteous person, is that you're not good enough. It's sort of offensive. This is the first time I met this guy, and I probably offended him, but I, I, I kept at it uh, because he needed to see that he's not as good as he thinks he is. Yeah, we're good by human standards. He's probably a great neighbor, a good father, a good husband. But by God's standard, we need to be saved. And we not only need to be saved from, you know, our self-righteousness or our sin, 
Ultimately, we need to be saved from God himself. God saves us from himself. Because if we have rebelled against God, and we have, if we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, if all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's eyes, then the Bible says the wrath of God is hovering over every sinner. Anybody who has not surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ, every step they take in life, they, they take under a cloud of God's wrath. That's what J John 3.36 says. If you haven't believed in Jesus, the wrath of God is abiding on you. And you feel safe because it hasn't struck you, but one day it will strike you. So Romans says, since we have been justified by Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. That's right, when you come to Jesus Christ, you are spared from the wrath of God because as that wrath was coming down on you as a sinner, Jesus slipped in between and it struck him on the cross. Why turn? To be saved from the wrath of God. Who is to turn? What a wonderful universal call to all people in all times, in all places, in every place of the world. It's a call to every Muslim in Indonesia, a call to every Buddhist in China, to every Hindu in India, to every animist in Africa, to Catholics and Jews and atheists and agnostics, to religious people and non-religious people, all the ends of the earth. This is your invitation, wherever you are, whoever you are. And I know it contradicts the, the modern-day philosophy of postmodernism, which says, you know, there is no one truth for all people. That you believe what you believe simply as a matter of circumstance, because this is where you happen to grow up in a world, and this was what was around you, and uh, that's where you get your religious belief. That's yours, and you know, somebody in the deep jungle, they formed an animistic belief. But God says, to all the ends of the earth, wherever you are, whoever you are, turn to me and be saved. Because there is no other God who can save you. To whom do we turn? We turn to this only God, Elohim, the one who has authority and power over the entire universe. I am the Lord. I am the covenant God the faithful God who comes actually into relationship with people. 
We turn to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the triune God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's described in this text in a number of different ways. We turn to the true God who created the world. And he created it, our text says, for you to live in and for you to know him, to turn to him. Look in verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Our text tells us that God created everything, the heavens and the earth. He gave the earth its very shape. He gave it stability. He did not create it empty. The word means meaningless, but rather with the purpose. Why did God create such a beautiful world? So that it could be inhabited by you. So that you, as his creation, would have the privilege of knowing the one true God, as the Westminster Catechism says, you are here to know him and to enjoy him now, not just now, but forever. We turn to him because we belong to him. He put us here to know him. We turn to the true God who is both hidden and accessible. Verse 15, Isaiah says, Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. And then down in verse 19, he says, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. God is both hidden and accessible. I told someone last night that when I think of this God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the giver of the Holy Spirit, when I think of what I don't know about him, the mystery about this God, the hiddenness, it is so vast. But then I have this portion where God has spoken, where God has revealed some of himself and his will for mankind in this world and the next to come. I have this much. And I like what Moses said. Moses said the, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Don't spend too much time thinking about what you don't know and can never know in this life about God. He goes on to say, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. God has spoken clearly for his people. We don't know everything about God, but we know enough about him 
to be saved, to be forgiven, to know him, to have a glimpse of what the future world will be, to know his will for how we ought to live in this world. He is both hidden and accessible. But what a contrast that is to idolaters. If you choose to follow false gods, then in verse 16 and verse 20 of our text, We're told that you live in confusion and you live in ignorance. You live in confusion because as he has mocked and ridiculed idols before, idols are nothing. They're nothing. They don't speak, they don't live, they don't act. You live in confusion if you don't know God, if you haven't listened to what he has said, especially when it comes to what we might, what are often called the the ultimate questions of life. Why am I here? Where do I come from? Who am I? What is my purpose in life? What happens when I die? You can't talk to your idol of your bank account or your idol of your degrees on your wall or your idols of your success or your idols of your pleasures in life that satisfy you. You can't talk to them and ask those questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? What happens when I die? Your idols leave you in confusion. Isaiah says they have no knowledge. But it's really not an ignorance because of the absence of knowledge. It's the ignorance because of the rejection of knowledge. For instance, you may be living with cancer, eating away inside your body, and have no knowledge of it at all. So you do nothing because you know nothing. But that's not the parallel to our ignorance of God. The parallel is you go to the doctor who runs some tests, who does a biopsy, and gives you a report of malignancy, and yet you walk away saying, I don't believe it. I feel fine. I'm not under the wrath of God. I'm not going to hell. My life is good. And all around you, God's world is crying out. There's a powerful, glorious God who brought all of this into being. And your own conscience, your own inner being at times cries out because you were made in the image of God, that there is a God to whom I'm responsible. We're ignorant not because 
There's no knowledge available. We're ignorant because, as Romans 1 says, we suppress the truth because we don't like the implications of the truth. Because if there is a creator God who is all-powerful, if there is some other law besides myself that I'm responsible to, then I must repent of my autonomy and my self-idolization. We turn to the true God who alone commands and controls the future. Look in verse 20 again. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. This is another one of those courtroom scenes that Isaiah creates. Come and present your case to God. Prove that your gods are real gods. They have no knowledge. You carry about their wooden idols. And I love this phrase. That's a sad phrase. And keep on praying to a God that cannot save? Declare, God says, present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it? Who is able to predict that Cyrus, who isn't even on planet Earth in 150 years, will come? and accomplish the will of God. A pagan king who doesn't even know God will do the will of God. Who told you this? Who declared it? Was it not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Again, he challenges idols. Just as we can believe his word about Cyrus, because now we can look back and we can say, that's the way it happened. History proves that's the way it happened. Just as we can believe his word about Cyrus, which is fulfilled, and we can believe his word about the Messiah given so often in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come. We believe that because it has been fulfilled. Jesus came. We can also believe his word about future judgment. As Steve preached last week, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We have a God who speaks, who declares, who fulfills. This is the God to whom we turn to be saved. We turn to the true God who hears your prayer and can save you. Again, that phrase, they have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Again, we don't have idols of wood today or statues of gold and silver, but we have idols. 
But can you pray to your idol? Can you open your wallet and take out that $50 bill and say, uh, can you give me peace today and give me security today? And I really failed you yesterday. Uh, I didn't use money properly. Can you forgive me? You keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Of course, we don't do those verbal prayers, but we do pray. We put our trust, we put our hope, we seek to find our joy to God's, in God's that cannot save. It's one of the saddest realities of life that there are sincere people, well-meaning people, religious people, who no matter how long or how much they pray, if you are not praying to the God of Israel, Yahweh, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the giver of the Holy Spirit, if you are not praying to the triune God, you are praying to a God who cannot save you. Now briefly, That was the major part of my message. But the other two points briefly. Not only listen to the offer, but look at the outcome. If you look in verses 15 and 16 and verse 24 and compare them, the outcome for idolaters is if you keep that path of rebellion you will reap shame. You may lift your head high today in your pride and your idolatry, but one day you will bow your head in shame because your idol will fail you. Whereas for believers, they reap salvation. God says the end of verse 15, you shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. If you turn and are saved by this one God who alone can save you, you will never, ever be ashamed. Paul put it this way in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God says one day, many idolaters will come to him. They will accept his offer to turn and be saved. He says, many of those who were incensed against him are going to turn and be saved. What a, what a wonderful thing that is. I love the way it's stated because that was my experience. To be incensed against God means that you're, you're not s- sort of innocently and helplessly following idolatry. The word incense has the idea of being 
deliberate. It's a decisive commitment to not only worship false gods, but to have animosity toward the true God and anything that represents that. That was my story before, even though I was raised Christian, before I became a Christian, I did not like Christians. I could probably say I hated them. I wanted nothing to do with them. I wanted nothing to do with their God, their Savior. I was incensed against not only God, but anything that had to do with that. And so when I think of the desperate plight of lost people, like I was lost, they don't need our sympathy. That's not what they need. You know, they don't know, you know, they're ignorant. No, there is deep-seated rebellion and resistance in the heart of sinners. They don't need our sympathy. They need powerful prayer because it's only the power of God through his Holy Spirit that can penetrate a hard and resistant heart. And that heart may be resistant like mine was because of my rebellion, or that heart might be resistant like the man I talked to the other night because he's righteous in his own eyes. But whether it's self-righteousness or rebellion, only the grace of God, the goodness of God can lead sinners to repentance. I love verse 14, the first verse that we read this morning, which gives a sort of a picture of what, it, what it's like when God delivers his people and others see the deliverance of his people and they want to be part of what God is doing. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt, the merchandise, merchandise of Cush, which is the southern part of Egypt, and the Sabians, which is even more south of Egypt. Some would say that it's modern Yemen today. But he says, they shall come over to you and be yours. They'll follow you. They'll come to you in chains and bow down. They'll submit to you. Now, there's no indication of war in this text. So it's not that, you know, these people have become enslaved in chains. It's that they have willingly submitted themselves to the people of God. They have seen what God has done. They've seen that great deliverance. And they bring their wealth. You know, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, the Egyptians gave them wealth for their journey. And much of that wealth was used to build the tabernacle, all that gold-plated material in the tabernacle given by Egyptians who saw the power of God at work. And we know that when the exile uh, was over and Cyrus sent the people back to the land, the 
the Babylonians, the surrounding nations to Jerusalem. They saw what God was doing, and they gave of their wealth for the building of the temple. And that's happening today all over the world. Gentiles, like you, like me, see what God has done through his son on the cross in redeeming sinners, powerfully redeeming sinners, and we bring our tithes and offerings to build his kingdom, his temple on this earth. The wealth of the nations comes in as sinners respond to God's call, come to me, turn to me, and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. When you come to Christ, you also come to the body of Christ. You come to submit, as Paul says, we submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. We do this because God has saved us. It's a beautiful picture of the amazing grace of God the captors and oppressors and enemies of the people of God are touched by the grace of God. They hear the call of the gospel, turn to me and be saved. And they are saved. And together they worship the one Lord. They become part of that one body of Christ, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. I close with the third point. Take seriously his oath. Listen to his offer. Look at the outcome. But take seriously his oath. God says in verse 23, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. You know, when humans swear, they normally swear by something that in their mind is higher than them. You know, I swear on the Bible. I swear on my mother's grave. And we make oaths because we want to add a sense of certainty to the words that we're speaking. Now, God does not need to make an oath because his word is true, always true. But he condescends to our weaknesses and says, I will add a double whammy to my word. I swear by myself because there's nothing, no one, higher than God. I swear by myself that this is what will happen. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. The Apostle Paul, we know in the New Testament, takes those words 
spoken of Yahweh, but we know that Yahweh is the triune God. Yahweh is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So the Apostle Paul can take these words spoken of the God of the Old Testament and say that when Jesus became obedient to death, even the death of the cross, that God highly exalted him, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you've not done that, one day you will do it by coercion. Today you can do it because you see the glory and goodness of this God who says, turn to me and be saved. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for the invitation. Thank you for that day in my life when I heard your call and you claimed me and received me and saved me. And thank you for all of my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning and around the world who have turned and have been saved by your great power. But I pray this morning, Father, for those who haven't, who are on a way they think is right, but it's a way that leads to eternal death. Speak to them today, Father, clearly in their hearts through your Spirit. By your goodness, lead them to repentance, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.